0: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello,
1: hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And I know everybody is waiting for this week's episode of Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is mushrooms. Today is the first of two shows we're doing on mushrooms. Um, This is episode 286. Next week, we will do episode 287. Have you noticed a lot of mushrooms in the news, in the media, in your social media, in your Instagram, TikTok, Facebook? I've seen a lot of mushrooms and a lot of things about mushrooms, all kinds of mushrooms. On one end of the spectrum, we have the magic mushrooms and the psilocybin mushrooms that are trippy and maybe hallucinogenic that are things that people use in maybe spiritual or party or you know that type of environment but i've also been seeing a lot of articles recently about the medical profession medical mental health profession talking about psilocybin and mushrooms to be used for therapy for different types of things successfully which is interesting and maybe something that we might see legalized and on offer in the future i've also seen a lot of things about mushrooms. There are just so many different types of mushrooms, but adaptogens, mushroom tea, chocolate, tonic, powders, things to add to your smoothie, cereal that will make you feel great, energized, relaxed, sleepy, better memory, all kinds of things. I mean, they're not magic mushrooms, but all of those things sound kind of magical. And then we have mushrooms just as the ingredient, you know, the basic mushroom that you would buy, but mushrooms are also being used as the foundation for other ingredients. They're everywhere. So I thought, you know what, now would be a good time to maybe do a show or two about mushrooms and what's happening in the mushroom category. We're not going to be talking about psilocybin, and magic mushrooms. Um, next week, we'll be talking about mushrooms in a more coffee, chocolate, additive, energy, Coffee substitute, mushroom, mushroom chocolates to help you go to sleep at night. Capacity, so that will be a fun show today. We are talking about mushrooms, creating plant-based steaks and cutlets that's kind of are like chicken or meat. The company is called Meaty, M-E-A-T-I meaty.com. And today we're talking with Tyler Huggins, who is the CEO and co-founder of Meaty. We've talked a lot about plant-based alternatives to animal and meat products on this show over time. And they're made in a lot of different ways. Oftentimes they are made in a lab, lab grown, sometimes using cells. Sometimes it's a very complicated, complex Long, long industrial food production chain using a lot of different ingredients that are not really things you could pick up in a grocery store or a farmer's market. Everybody's sort of racing to figure out a way to get away from animal farming, animal products, something that's better for the environment, something that's perhaps better for people to solve our ever urgent problems of the environment and feeding a growing population. So Meaty definitely tips dips into that core category, but there are a couple of really interesting components about it, which make it an interesting conversation for this show on so many fronts. So without further ado, Tyler, thank you for joining us.
2: Hello. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me.
1: So uh, we'll, we'll unroll this the way we unroll most things, sort of in a nice chronological order. Um, the The way founders come to their companies and creating their products and come to their missions is always very interesting. I should probably do a book about that at some point. I I think about that all the time. I should do a Tech Bytes book about founders and innovation and all that kind of stuff. And maybe I will. I mean, I have 286 episodes of almost all of them talking to founders. But Tyler, you have... um, a very logical progression now that we look back at it. Perhaps it didn't seem so at the time. <laughs> you are a field scientist. You spend time out in the world, in the forest, in the fields, with the plants and are very closely aligned to studying that and following that and figuring out what what happens with that. That's your sort of starting point, yes?
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, I... I um was born and raised in in rural Montana. So, you know, just even growing up, we spent a lot of time out in the woods, uh, you know, whether hunting or fishing or camping. And so it was a sort of a natural progression for me to to go work for the Forest Service. So I was a field biologist and a wilderness ranger um, for about six years, studying both forest health and and rangeland ecology.
1: What does that actually mean? I mean, it sounds interesting and very official, but... What did you actually do and study, and then what was the results of your study?
2: Um, you know, when I first started off again, it was it was more uh, forest health uh, work. So it was it was both studying the um, you know different uh, you know parts of, of national forests and and cataloging and mapping um, the the diversity and the the health of of different um, forests, and then we would apply uh, different. Strategies in order to improve the health, uh, mostly around fire mitigation work. So, we would have a crew, um, usually firefighters, before fire season, and we would go into the woods and we would thin it out. We'd go to areas that were um, prone or had a lot of um, you know beetle kill or other you know pest kills that was that was super dense um, and had you know for a long time we've been suppressing fires, and so you had you know, almost overpopulation of, of trees that were ended up being unhealthy and that would result in catastrophic fires. So we did that for a long time. And then I started transitioning into rangeland ecology. So that's basically, you know, grasslands, areas that are used for, for cattle production. Um, and we would study the health of it. You know, how, was, how healthy was the grass? What was the biodiversity? Was there noxious weeds? Um, And then what sort of methodologies can we use in order to improve it? So it had more biodiversity, it had better grass, um, it was a healthier ecosystems.
1: So I'm going to make note that you are talking about and studying a ecosystem and a natural environment that has a lot of different components that are existing together, animals, plants, and all kinds of things, and that they need to sort of exist together. And I'll be healthy and interact in the right balance for life to be successful there.
2: That and I think the other, you know, the, I think that the, the seed that was planted early um, for me was the interactions you had sort of nature in its own unadulterated form um, doing its thing. And then there's there's the human interaction um, and how we how we work the land, how we extract resources, how, uh, jobs are created from, from working with the lands and that interaction. And, you know, over the years I wanted to develop, you know, different approaches to be able to have that relationship be more symbiotic instead of just, just strictly extractive where the land was degraded over time into a way we could interact. We could still have the resource extraction that we need. We still have jobs. But it actually, is beneficial for the land, and it was a, a more symbiotic relationship. And that's really sort of the second phase of my career was, you know, searching that path and trying to develop solutions and technologies, and, and ultimately a business um, that could again have that ultimate result.
1: It's interesting um, that you talk about wanting to have a, a ecosystem and a landscape that is not simply extractive, which means which essentially just means people coming and taking what they want out of it (laughs) without really thinking about what the results are or if they're going to be able to continue to do that. Um, You know, this really makes me think about an episode uh, that we did back in 2021, episode 245, uh, about the FORGE project, which is a a fellowship program for Indigenous Americans. And one of the um, women who was the first one of the first fellows in their first cohort um, was working on a field guide to restore, um, you know, knowledge about plants and, and food systems. And it was really very interesting. And and she said something that really resonated with me because I still do remember it. She talked about when people, um, when, people from other countries, immigrants you know a long time ago, mostly the Europeans came and they came to the Americas, specifically North America and they found you know the forests and the fields and the land just being so abundant and really beautiful and that sort of you know Garden of Eden um, type of idea. She was very pointed in saying that it wasn't like that just because nature made it so. She said there had been people living on the land really with a, a point of view of, of stewardship sort of cultivating and making sure that everything flourished, but in balance. And so when people showed up and they're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Look at what nature made. It's like, yes, but no, there's like thought and effort um, that went into it to create a balanced and bountiful ecosystem like that.
2: I love that you bring that up. I mean, that's exactly sort of, um, you know, that was a realization for me as well, is this idea that you know there's there's nature and then there's humans and that they all live separately from each other or they always have um you know that those days are long gone you know we are now you know we have humans have influenced the the natural world and the landscapes around us for you know thousands of years and have shaped it to your point and and, and a lot of especially in north america the um You know, it was a symbiotic relationship. It was an active gardening, if you will. And I think we need to bring back that that philosophy and that approach where it's not just letting nature be. We have to separate ourselves, but actually interact in a way that that is mutually beneficial.
1: So you are working professionally, looking at the ecosystems, how they can best be managed from a lot of different points of view. And then how do, you, how do you make the leap from that to creating essentially, uh, you know, giant mushroom chicken tenders?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, definitely a long and windy road. Um, but I, you know, really it was, I was doing, you know, I started my own, my first company, Restoring the Rockies, and where we were a private company doing land restoration work. So I hired a bunch of ex-firefighters. We'd go into the woods, we'd clean it up, we'd make it healthier. Uh, we went out into you know Nebraska and other areas and, and cleaned up grasslands and made them better. Ultimately, that was just, it wasn't at the scale in which I, I wanted to create a positive impact on the world. It wasn't sort of big enough. And so I decided, you know, I, I wanted to develop this thesis about, you know, all these lessons that I learned studying natural systems, studying, you know, different organisms, their niches in the environment. I really developed this this viewpoint that you know nature was kind of a toolbox, and that each sort of species, whether it's plants or animals or bacteria, had developed certain attributes to make it successful in a very sort of competitive um, or symbi- and symbiotic world and I wanted to I wanted to go back to graduate school and learn how to guide that process or you know various processes in order to again create this uh, a more you know harmonious Uh, Relationship with nature, so I went back to graduate school. I started. I got my PhD in environmental engineering. So again, using you know mostly microbes to clean water, to produce materials, you know, uh, just kind of going down that route. And then ultimately, I I I started working with mycelium, which is not the mushroom cap itself, but it's actually this thread-like structure that's in the soil. uh, Kind of looks like uh, roots. And I had studied this when I was in, in as a forest service uh, biologist and the relationship with plants. And I thought, you know, if you could control that, if you could guide that natural process, you could produce all kinds of materials and you could really benefit the world. So I, I started working on on you know, that at a fundamental level. How do you control the growth? How do you make different uh, different structures and different morphologies, different chemical composition and, and grow it and cultivate it and guide it along its path? Uh, It's what it naturally wants to do. Ultimately, I found, you know, I I really wanted to, you know, the the goal was, you know, positive change in the world. And it was sort of agnostic on on how I was going to do this. Ultimately, I found that, you know, food is a great place to not only benefit the world, the natural world, and the environment, but also people. Um, And and given, you know, my parents, something I didn't mention, my parents run a grass-fed bison operation, Um, and I'd always, you know, spent a lot of time in in agriculture and, and and animal husbandry. And so that was always, you know, part of my life and upbringing. And so then it was a natural sort of progression of, you know, how do we create, you know, solutions that, that would create positive change and and food was ultimately, ultimately the path that I, that I went down. And, you know, I would argue we'd produce a a delicious, um, new type of meat, um, using again, not the mushroom cap itself, but actually the root structure.
1: So, so many things there and you jumped the gun on the family farm. We were going to totally get to that Ah. later, but yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, which is, um, it's atypical for founders in the plant-based meat alternative space is what I'll say, (laughs) but we will get to that. Let's, let's back up first and start with the mushroom mycelium. When you say it's the root and not the cap, are we, when I visualize a mushroom, I picture the little round cap and then a foot. And then it would grow in the ground. So is the mycelium, the, the foot or the stem of the mushroom or is the mycelium actually the part that's growing underground?
2: So it's the part that, that grows underground. It's in, you know, miles of it in every square inch of, of soil and actually all mushrooms. So, Mushrooms are, and I'm sure the mycologists that are listening to me are going to cringe, but mushrooms are essentially the fruit. Um, you can think of them as the fruit of the fungi. So, Uh, The mycelium is growing underground. Then when it wants to reproduce, it produces a mushroom cap, and then that releases spores and starts the the cycle. Um, So actually, mushrooms themselves are made of mycelium. It's the mycelium that comes up above ground and creates this vegetative fruiting body that then produces spores. Now, we just grow the mushroom root itself.
1: So you don't have any of the caps and the spores. I saw a fascinating video on Instagram of a mushroom releasing spores, and it was in some sort of, uh, you know, hyperfocus time lapse photography. And it literally looked like things launching off the cap of the mushroom, like a, a a spray of. It almost looked like birds or sand or something like that. It was really fascinating.
2: I, it's a really cool process. Uh, and I, I think, you know, for, especially as humans, we only really, you know, appreciate or we seem to appreciate more the things that we can see, the things that we can touch and feel. Uh, but actually, in the soil um, is a whole magical world of activity that we just, you know, even now we don't fully understand and can, you know, result in such amazing things like that you
1: just discussed. So, y- did you select mushroom mycelium then because it? It just propagates so easily. It's very abundant. You know, when we were talking earlier about mushrooms and the, um, you know, nutritional components and how easily it can be cultivated, it really made me think of the seaweed trend that we saw a few years ago, um, which we're still experiencing today because all those products are still here. There's a big interest in seaweed products and seaweed cultivation and seaweed farms because it is so easy to farm. It's so bountiful and has a pretty decent nutrient density. So did you pick mushrooms because of that? Was there another reason? Does it just happen to be in your neck of the woods, literally? And you're like, oh, this is great. This happens to be right here in my backyard. So let's work with that.
2: A, a little bit of both. You know, I think, you know, when we were looking at, okay, if you if you want to create Positive change in food, meat is a great place to start. Obviously, it's, it's part of our culture and, and a main component of, you know, millions, billions of people's diets, uh, but it also has a, a high environmental footprint. So it's a great place if, you're, if you want to create a positive change. But if you're going to compete in meat, it's got to be meat-like. It has to have that texture, the fibrousness, the juiciness, the pull, the mouth, the mouth feel of meat, of muscle structure. So that is one is really important. It also has to be packed full of protein that is, you know, a, a major reason why we eat meat high in protein, um, and, and vitamin B's and zinc and, and iron and a few other things. So it's got to have this nutritional content that we associate with meat. Um, obviously it has to taste delicious. It has to taste like, like animal based meat. And then if you want to create a solution that is superior to what we currently have, yes, it needs to be able it needs to be, be able to be produced more efficiently with less resources. Uh, less overall impact. And so that was sort of the guardrails. Now, if you look out into nature and you say, okay, well, what has those attributes? You know, right now, as you mentioned in the intro, a lot of people are trying to use plants. Um, the challenge with plants is plants don't re- aren't really that good at producing protein. They're really good at producing starch. Um, so that's the you know one of the challenges. You have to grow a lot of plants in order to just get a small amount of, of protein out of it. And you have to extract that protein and concentrate it in order to get to the the levels in which we would see in meat. Uh, And that requires all kinds of problems because you don't have the texture, it has off flavors. Again, some of the things that we're seeing right now with the current plant-based offerings. What's really cool about mycelium, our particular type of mycelium, is that it's 60% by weight protein. Very high in protein. So you don't have to extract it. You can actually eat the, the, the mushroom root, the mycelium itself, um, which is pretty unique. It's a complete protein. It has all the essential amino acids. It has all your iron, your vitamin Bs, your zinc, again, nutrients that we associate with meat. And then given this fibrous texture, this long range fibers, it, give, it, it mimics muscle structure. It has a very similar mouthfeel and cooking experience as you would find with meat. And then ultimately, to your point, it grows really fast. I and mean, I love the seaweed work that's going on because seaweed is one of the fastest growing organisms on the planet. And actually our type of mycelium is, is up there, is like the second fastest growing. So extremely fast, very efficient. You, know, you just basically feed it sugar. It eats all the sugar and grows. So in its total package, you know, not only is it one of the most nutritious meats in the world, it is by far the most efficient way to produce meat out there.
1: So the interesting thing is that you are a founder of a plant-based alternative for an animal product. And your goal is a more harmonious environment between people and plants so that everything can be sustained and balanced, it sounds like. Where I always ask my founders who are focused on plant-based and the environment, how do you project or view people eating meat into the future? Are you creating this product because you don't want people eating meat or using any animal products in the future? Is this a a two-pronged approach, one to save the environment, but the other to sort of create a, a vegan environment, society going forward?
2: I believe in diversity in our diets. I think more options, more healthy, uh, sustainably produced options, the better. And so I don't think this is a, a, there's a silver bullet. I don't think there's one strict diet in which we we have to adopt. And so, you know, I'm not a vegan or vegetarian, but I do value high quality meat. And that's the world in which I'm trying to to promote, in which we take the pressures off of commodity-based meat production, industrial meat production. You know, I don't think it's an evil conspiracy that these, you know, the individuals in this industry want to hurt the land and want to torture animals. It's a pressure to lower the price to as low as they possibly can, um, because it's a commodity. That results um, in in poor practices, poor land management, you know, mistreatment of animals, all those things are bad and, and something that I, I want to improve on. So if we can provide more options, especially ones that are at scale, Massive scale that are affordable, obviously are, are delicious and well accepted by um, by people. Then we can diversify our meat system. We can take that pressure off. And then what I would love to see is it go back to the to to using practices that I know farmers and ranchers know how to do. That's better for the land. That's better for animals. Yes, it's going to be more expensive. Meat, you know, meat will be animal meat will be more expensive. But we just eat less of it. We eat it when it's a celebration. We have it on the weekends or whenever, but you're going to pay a little bit more for it. And then your daily sort of, you know, go-to protein and meat source can be like products like Meaty um, or others to help diversify the system.
1: Diversity. That's a nice word. We like that. We like diversity. So many times um, people have a very uh, uninclusive, undiverse point of view. and. You know, diversity seems to be an important component for success for a group of people living on a planet that are so diverse as as ours. Having an idea, regardless of what that idea is, um, whether it's, you know, farm, meat, plant, plant substitute, animal based, lab grown, um, you know, trying to propagate one point of view and one solution never seems to be very successful. Agreed. We're going to take a quick pause and find out who is underwriting this show. Did you know Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? And we keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of underwriters like this one. Stay
0: with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. You are
1: listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology, and today that intersection is mushrooms. We're doing a two-part show on mushrooms. It's a trend. It's functional food. It's new food. It's adaptogens and making you energized and relaxed, so many things. Today, we are talking with Tyler Huggins, who is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Meaty m-e-a-t-i.com you can find them on social media at meaty foods across most platforms their current product offering is a meat steak cutlet one is sort of natural one is breaded like a chicken cutlet they're very chickeny in the sort of feel and taste and texture and look They are made from mushrooms and interestingly, just other basic ingredients like salt, paprika, fruit juice, oat fiber, olive oil, salt, sugar, really um, basic ingredients, ingredients that we recognize as ingredients, ingredients that we could go and buy in the grocery store or online. So many of the plant-based lab-grown alternative things are highly processed and have ingredients that we don't know what they are and have created an entire separate industry of creating these plant-based products to recreate mouthfeel sensations and all of that, which is, which is just really fascinating. I guess people want what they want and if people want to eat meat and you don't want them to, you have to give them something that tastes and feels and seems like meat even if maybe producing that meat might not be the same environmental impact as raising, say, a cow, but it does have impact and it does have waste and it does take energy in a lab and an assembly line to produce all these things. So we're at an interesting time, I think, where consumers need to be very educated about what they're eating. Plant-based doesn't always mean good for you, for your body, for the planet. It doesn't always mean it's nutritious. It doesn't always mean that it's produced efficiently and effectively and doesn't have its own chain of waste and energy. So we're, I think we're at a time right now with all of these new plant-based products, lab-grown products, animal plant substitutes, where we were maybe 10 or 15 years ago with organic. What does organic mean? What does free range mean? What is all of that? Consumers needed to educate themselves. What's happening in the coffee market? That's something that we went through also 10, 15 years ago. Coffee was just coffee. Same thing with chocolate. Chocolate was just chocolate. But now we have a better understanding of how it's produced in different parts of the country. We have a better idea of what all of those variety of beans are, how they're produced. Maybe some are produced better. Some are produced with people being paid a fair wage in a manner that is beneficial to the environment. Some are not. Some are made with child labor in ways that strip the land. Same thing with plant farms. Same thing with vegetable farms. Just because it's a vegetable farm doesn't mean it's good for the environment. Just because it's an animal farm doesn't mean it's bad for the environment. And I think to Tyler's point, part of probably what gives him his perspective is that his family has a bison ranch, which is amazing. We've talked about regenerative farming um, and sort of holistic farming on this show. Um, if it's something that you're interested in, I would go back in the Tech Bytes archives to episode 2019, which was about regenerative farming, a farm on the East Coast. I would go back to episode 245, The Forge Project, um, which is a fellowship program for indigenous Americans. And one talks about uh, sort of the history and the different, the different practices and, Plants in nature. The last one that we did was episode 264 Silvopasture Tech Stack, which is essentially using nature to create a tech stack uh, to do what you need to do at a farm. So it's very interesting, symbiotic, everything feeding into the ecosystem together, not the extremity of one or the other. I mean, that sounds like a good idea to me. Um, Sounds like something that's rational and reasonable. And then Tyler, but you believe that within the system of having animal farms and animal products, you need to have these other alternatives.
2: I do. I think given the, the amount of people that we need to feed today and, and into the future, um, we've got to develop multiple different solutions. We've, we have to increase our output um, and our agricultural practices. We've got to increase the health of it, of the food that we eat. And then we need to reduce the overall impact that we have. And so I think, you know, to do that, you have to build multiple different solutions. We've got to diversify our food system. We've got to try and adopting new practices.
1: What made you, did the idea of doing sort of chicken like steaks and cutlets, did that come first as the idea or did that come second after you decided you wanted to work with mycelium and mushrooms?
2: Hi, you know, I think I mean, it was a little bit of both. You know, I had been working with, with mycelium in the past um, and then identifying, again, looking at food is a place to have you know, massive global positive impact. Um, the, the idea with, with going out with a chicken-like or beef-like products is, is one we debated for a, for a long time. Uh, But we thought it was important to create products that people were already familiar with. You know, if you're going to introduce something new, I think you can only, uh, it can't be, it's a little more difficult if it's all completely new and totally outside uh, outside the box. We wanted to give our consumers something that they're familiar with. They know how to cook chicken. They know what the eating experience is like. They have, you know, recipes that they follow. Uh, But we didn't want it to be exactly. And I think that's ultimately where we'll go with this is you have a new type of meat um, that is just delicious, but it's, but you but it has that same you know again the nutritional profile. If not, it's actually even better than traditional meat. It has fiber and other vitamins and minerals you only really find in plants. Uh, but it's still the same cooking and eat and eating experience. And then ultimately, we can just make it taste delicious. Different flavors, um, uh, it's really sort of endless in what we can do with this.
1: It's an interesting, it's always interesting to me when I talk with founders of, you know, plant-based or lab-grown products that want to substitute, become the substitute or become the new version of what what has been to date, animal-based. Many times they say that, you know, I ask if they if they want, you know, the animal product, the dairy product, the meat product to become something in the future that no one no one has had. That's something that just exists, you know, in movies or in books that we reach a generation of people who have never had dairy ice cream or an actual beef burger. And many times they say yes, that that is part of their goal, not just to save the planet, but also just to eradicate um, animal-based products. And it's an interesting idea to me in that People are so driven by creating a substitute for something for that transitional piece, for that crossing the chasm piece, which is famously an an innovation idea to get people from point A to point B, because theoretically, if it's a new product and a new item made with new ingredients, could it just be something new? You know, like, why does it have to be? something that kind of is pretending to be something else couldn't it just be some new thing of like we made this new thing it's delicious you should eat it <laughs> and that,
2: that, that's our goal really is I, and I think you we're trying to give you something that you're familiar with so you kind of know what you're gonna expect you're like okay that's probably like chicken that way it kind of reduces the barrier to consumption and it. our goal to trying it right you kind not okay um, and especially our goal is to be a prop for everyone. We want this to be in every grocery store. Um, we want this to be accessible to everyone. And so we well, what we know is that a lot of people like chicken, a lot of people like beef. And so that's a good place to start to get people to try it, to become familiar with mushrooms and mycelium and how this can be made and how cool and special it is, how it can be good for you and, and benefit your life and, and the planet. And then as we can, as we get more awareness, then to your point, I think we can, we, we will, we'll create something new and it'll just be meaty a new type of meat.
1: Or not necessarily with a touch point of something else. Do you feel like, here's the thing, just like eating a new thing at a, at a restaurant or in a country or in a place you've never been. It's like, oh, here, this is a new thing that you've never had. It's good. It'll be the meaty tacos. It's not, it's not going to be, yeah, it's not going to be a reference to anything else. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, yeah. um, all those things are so interesting to me. So you started Meaty in 2017. This is 2023. Yep. Um, how's it going?
2: It's been, it's been a wild <laughs> ride, for sure. You know, our challenge, ha- you know, we knew right away we had something special. Uh, we got in front of, uh, you know, chefs and, and seasoned food veterans, and they said, yes, this is it. This is what the, the market's been looking for. We know consumers want alternatives. They want diversity in their diet. They, they want solutions that are not only healthy for them, but for the planet. That's not really that controversial, what the, but they're not gonna compromise on flavor and the eating experience, and it needs to be healthy. It needs to be real whole food. And you guys have been able to do that. The challenge for us was scaling and supply. I mean, this category is enormous. You know, the, the volumes in the meat category are in the billions. It's just, it's, just, it's hard to even wrap your head around. And so in order to compete, in order to actually make the impact we want, we not only have to drive demand, but supply. We're fully vertically integrated. We grow the, the mycelium, the mushroom root in house in our own system, make sure it's clean and healthy and, and efficient. And we produce the finished good and package it as well. There's no There was no infrastructure. There was no farmers or ranchers of, of, of mushroom root. We had to start this whole category and this whole industry, and that requires money venture, um, uh, dollars and building out the infrastructure. So that's what we've been doing for, um, you know, ever since we started was building out these facilities in order to have the supply to get it out to people. And right now is a big moment for the company. We just finished what we call our mega ranch. Uh, it'll produce tens of millions of pounds of product state of the art, really cool, one of a kind, uh, facility where we grow the mushroom root and we just launched in all sprouts locations, um, uh, just what yesterday.
1: That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, on your big ranch, which is not actually a ranch, it looks like a factory. Um, people aren't going to pull up and see like green trees and stuff. Are you conscientious of the energy output and your carbon footprint and, and all those things? Because that's, that's something that people don't necessarily consider. They think about the ingredient. They think about the product, the end product. Is it good for me? Is it good for my family? I mean, part of the issue about um, some of the industrial farming, whether it be plant or animal, some of the primary issues that we have in you know looking at this industry are not just about the quality of the final product, but what's happening along the production chain. and. Oftentimes, as you, you know, articulated earlier, there's bad things happening.
2: Absolutely. And, I, you know, I really appreciate you bringing up um, earlier this fact that, like, just because it's a plant doesn't mean that it was grown in a way that was, you know, beneficial to, to, to nature. I mean, famously,
1: Monsanto um, corn and soybeans, yeah. you know, from the movie corn. and everything.
2: Uh, bananas you know there yeah. there are a lot of crops that are just devastating to the mm-hmm. lands can be mm-hmm. very you know uh chemical intensive resource intensive hard on um the workers uh, so you really have to look holistically um at end to end the full life cycle approach to how we produce our food to really understand um you know what is the what is the full impact and and that's what we did from the very beginning we not only did we have to create something, again, that was delicious and that people would love and it was nutritious, we knew it had to be built on a platform that was ultimately less impactful and the most efficient way to produce meat. Uh, we set those guardrails and we started designing it accordingly. Uh, we'll be producing LCA, so full life cycle assessment numbers. We, we test and we study and we collect data from end to end on, and understanding the impact that we have from our current production method. And... Um, you know, that so far, the numbers that are coming in are just a fraction of what it currently takes to produce meat in this country. And we're just getting started. Are we perfect? Not by any means. I'm not going to say that we're hundred percent perfect. We just got started, but we've identified areas in which we can continue to improve, you know, where we get our sugar from. Uh, you know, we are, we are at the whim of industrial agriculture. Uh, we can't dictate where, how the sugar is produced. But we can try to source it as best as we can ultimately you know, in the future we'd love to to influence that category and then of course how we produce it electrifying everything using renewable energy um, we do have line of sight based on their approach this can be totally uh closed loop it could be zero water discharge i mean really excited the potential of what we can do here it's just a matter of time and money to get us to the place we want to be but even right now we're still you know,
1: just, again, a fraction of what's required currently. And we really only have a fraction of time that would be required to keep talking about production and all those types of things. I I always tell my guests we will run out of time and we essentially have, which is a good thing um, because we have more episodes and more shows. I'm going to ask you just really quickly though, just to sort of close the conversation on the production because For any new business, anything in the food tech space, scaling is the big hurdle. You have a great idea, you can beta test it, you can make a few, you can send them to, you know, sell them to a small market. But scale, especially in something like, you know, chicken and chicken breasts and commodities, and especially when we talk about feeding a planet of billions and billions of people, the technology, the idea of what you're doing, the technology that you're working with, how much of it is is new things that you have to create? How much of it is repurposing something that's on the shelf? You are very specifically creating essentially a giant chicken cutlet from mushrooms, which was good. I, I won't lie. Meaty sent me a box of the different products that they have and we had them for dinner the other night and it was pretty good. I mean, it like got crispy and it was nicely flavored and it did have a good texture and it did, have, it did have that like lightly mushroomy texture to it, which was not unpleasant. Um, and also maybe because I knew I was focused on the idea of mushroom, but it was quite good. I had one for dinner with some sauteed vegetables and it was great. Are, are you talking with other other founders and companies that are trying to create these renewable energy farm production lines that are new? Maybe he's trying to solve new problems, new technology. I mean, it must be challenging to do anyway on your own. Are do you have the time and the bandwidth to collaborate with other companies? Mm -hmm.
2: You know, so when we started down this path, we also knew that we couldn't completely reinvent the wheel. We needed to look out into industry, food production, and and try to pick processes that were already at scale, that already worked in order to take the risk off the table. So we could point, we could show investors, hey, this may be new in its totality, but each individual process has been done somewhere in food production, whether it's you know producing citric acid during the, the fermentation process to bread and cheese making downstream. And we're able to, to put this together in a very unique way. So we're using off the shelf equipment and doing novel things with it. In order to in order to do what we what we do today. Very scalable. It's just a matter of time and money in order to to build out the infrastructure. And you know again our our, our mission is to have global pop positive change. We're not going to be able to do this alone. We're going to have to partner with with people who can help us go faster. This is not a demand problem. There is so much demand out there for good high quality meat. Um, the problem is is a supply problem. And so how can we build this out? I mean, it took, you know, a couple hundred years to build out our current infrastructure just in the United States. How can we do that in just a fraction of the time? That's going to require a lot of investment and a lot of partnerships.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. So often we focus on what's on the plate because we focus on what's on the plate because that is the thing closest to our personal and individual survival, eating in the moment, Um, For day-to-day survival. Uh, But the whole, the larger process, you know, as we become more aware and give consideration to carbon footprint and production facilities and all those types of things, um, it's a lot. It can be overwhelming sometimes, I think, to consumers. It's probably overwhelming to you as a founder trying to solve these issues uh, rapidly in a way that's highly productive. Um, You know, I note another show that we did, which was very interesting, was about App Harvest, which is the Appalachian-based company that is indoor tomato farming, essentially, you know, hydroponic tomato farming, because tomatoes are the second most purchased produce, I think, in the country. They're billions and billions of dollars. And something like 90% of the American tomato market, um, supermarket tomatoes, come from Mexico. So the company is looking at taking, uh, you know, taking a chunk out of that, but also very thoughtfully built the facility, which is huge in Appalachia, as an idea to replace employment opportunities that were lost when coal started to close, coal mining, and that fossil fuel business started to close. So it's also an interesting idea of new things, new people, you know, kind of switching out, which happens all the time, one industry pl- replaces another industry, one closes and, you know, another one springs up. Um so much to consider though. It's it's got to be overwhelming. Um how do you how do you move forward day to day when you must have a to-do list of like, you know, 1.3 million things?
2: <laughs> At least you know, just one step at a time. Obviously, it's the only choice we have. You know, we're, we're and we take we're taking some really big swings. Um, you know, we we took a leap of faith that we had a product that people wanted and we started building out the required infrastructure to do so. It's just, again, at this scale and the need we need to take some big, bold bets. I love what the the folks are doing with, um, you know, uh, urban farming and and renewable ag. And I think it's all of these combinations together. There's no one silver bullet, but we've, we've all got to just keep trying to, to make it better.
1: Well, keep trying, make it better, talk to more people, make more radio. <laughs> I want to thank Tyler Huggins, CEO and co-founder of Meaty for talking with us today about his mushroom cutlet business, If you're interested in finding out more about that, go to Meaty.com, M-E-A-T-I.com. Find them on social media at Meaty Foods. If you want to get some for yourself, you can order on the website. You can also go to Sprouts Farmer's Market. If you want to see Tyler, he'll be at South by Southwest talking on some panels. If you are interested in mushrooms as a food tech trend, come back and listen next week. We'll be doing another show, this time about chocolates and teas and tonics. If you love Tech Bytes and the idea of all these founders and CEOs trying to create more delicious, equitable food products that are good for the planet and for people, come back and listen. Subscribe on your favorite platform, on your favorite podcasting platform. Leave us a five-star review. That'll help more people discover the show. If you think it's really important to have a platform like this to pass the mic to founders like Tyler to put a spotlight on things that are happening in the world. Go to heritageradionetwork.org, click the beating heart, and make a donation or become a member. You know, you could send us what you spend on a cup of coffee today, and it'll help us make more radio. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi, and this is Tech Bites.
0: This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network,